sometimes I play bullfight, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a private game of chicken. You, know, you run up to the edge of the cliff and see if you can stop. Uh, <laughs> by the way, speaking of running up to the, to the edge of the cliff and seeing if you... you know, that's chicken, you know. That's, that's a game of chicken. Everybody plays chicken in his own life in one way or another. And they're all little... Uh, you have your own little private games. But uh, one day in Cincinnati, I saw this, this friend of mine. He was an engineer, Nick. You may, uh, you know, you may appreciate this happening to a fellow engineer. He was going to the University of Cincinnati, very hip type, you know. And uh, one day we're down on the dock there. They have these docks on the river. And uh, we used to play chicken all the time. And what we played chicken with was uh, Vespas. You know, a little Vespa? And uh, we were going to run around the dock down in his Vespa scene. He says, watch this now. And he'd go right right along the edge of the dock, see? <laughs> I don't have to tell you. Anybody who's got a grappling hook, here's a nice Vespa I know that's available. It's only in 47 feet of water. And it's in almost mint condition. He, it's only had about 2,000 miles on it. And uh, he just... You know, he proved he wasn't chicken, though. By God, he wasn't chicken. And that's important. You don't want to be chicken, do you, friend? No, sir. Uh, speaking of not being chicken, before Shepard goes any further, he's going to do a commercial. Oh, that's all right, Jerry's nervous. It's all right. He'll, he'll come back in there. I'm going to lay one on him good. All right, we're going to do a commercial here and get it out of the way fast. And here it is. Uh, it's for Gramercy Park Closed. And uh, there are 64 West 23rd Street in New York, of course. And uh, here's what they say. Now that you've heard what Gramercy Park has done to the price of men's clothing, <laughs> watch what happens to you. Every time you pass a suit in the factory store window, you'll ask yourself, and we quote, Hey, I wonder how much a good-looking suit like that would cost at Gramercy Park. And, mister, the answer to that question can do you a lot of good. You'll go up to Gramercy Park. You'll go through the big iron gate. Boom! It'll close behind you. On the third floor of the factory building, there you'll stand, excited, and you'll see a couple of hundred people in a, uh, a couple of thousand suits, top coats, sport coats, and slacks. And you'll go over to the best-looking, most gorgeous suit you ever saw, and you'll say, is that all it costs? I'll take ten. And suddenly, you're one of the big men in your block. Of course, you'll be broke, but you'll have a lot of fun walking around with all those suits. That's what Gramercy Park can do for you. They're open to 7 p.m., Saturday to 6 p.m., and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, Gramercy Park closed, 64 West 23rd Street, 3rd floor, 64 West 23rd Street, 3rd floor in New York. The way it's written, it sounds like New York has four or five floors to it. Lot of feet. <laughs> you know, you talk about chicken games, I'll tell you. And I shouldn't tell you this at this hour. Would you give me a little mood music there, Nicholas, please? Just a little quiet mood music there. Yes, I wish to, uh, I wish to tickle a romantic the glands down there that lie down in the middle of all your machinery. Deep down inside of every human being, there lies supine. There lies... Whoops. Wait a minute. Is that going to do that again? No. It's okay. I thought our soul had a hang-up in there. You know, sometimes your soul does. You need a scratch filter on your soul. But uh, nevertheless, uh, deep down within each one of us, no matter how cloddish we seem to be on the outside... And <laughs> certainly a few of us have managed that. <laughs> yes, you'll see yourself one day sitting at the end of a bar, and you'll hear two people whispering, Who is that bum? And they'll know 
if they look deep into your eyes, that this is not a bum. It is a beautiful, simple, honest, humble, creative human being who, because of an evil society and uh, all the associated ills, has been crushed like a flower underfoot beneath the avenging, clomping clods, the nailed, hobnailed boots of evil. That's <laughs> kind of good. That's right. But of course you realize that uh, there's just, just a few of us good people in the world. And it, it, it's, it's what makes it so tough to live. It really does. Have you noticed that the world is divided into two groups of people? Right. And I'll tell you, that other group is rotten. That's what's causing all the problems. If everybody was as sensitive and as honest and as deeply concerned as we are, just think what a great world it would be. It's just... It would just be great. And the more I think about it, the more my eyes puddle up. And I say to myself, Shepard, why were you born in such an unthinking, such an uncaring world? A world so cruel and callous to the deep needs of the soul of man himself. <laughs> hold it, hold it, Nick. Nick, reset that, please. Yeah, that's good, yeah. God, I mean, that, that carried me away there. It's, it is true that we are sensitive. It's very true. And, uh... For those of you who are very sensitive, I'd like to lay a little goody on you here. If you're a particularly sensitive person, obviously you appreciate beautiful tires. The more sensitive you are, the more you like tires. By the way, I've always had a thing on new tires. I like to smell them and bounce them. You pick them up, you know, you bounce them on the uh, yeah, run your hand over those rich, thick treads. Oh, it's great. And if you'd like to meet the sexiest tire that you've ever met, you go down to your general tire headquarters. Take your pick, friend. Winter tires start as low as thirty-seven ninety per pair, and that ain't much. And by the way, uh, Generals makes this promise. You get those beautiful winter cleat tires. I hate to be doing snow tire spots. I'm not a snow person. But, I, you know, I feel you are. I know, Nick. I can always tell. They got acne. All right, here it is. Winter tires. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. Winter cleat. General's rugged four-rib that you uh, you don't have acne. You've just been standing too close to a piece of pizza. That's what your problem is. Go in snow or General pays the toll. Now, none of those lieutenant colonels can make that kind of a claim there. So you go down to your General Tire Dealer. You ask them about the snow tires. In the Bronx, you visit Paul McConkie, General Tire Service, 1163 Leggett Avenue. That's a romantic thought, please, Nick. A little romantic music. A little romantic music. I need it right now. What? Well, it's nice. What are you laying on me there? Hey, for those of you that are interested, this is the new Stones album. It's fantastic. Yeah, the Stones rediscover the world. It's called. Yeah. Yeah, this is the new Stones album. Yeah. That's right. They're playing all the instruments. It's fantastic. Where do you hear the vocal on this one? Just glorious. Yeah, it's Mom's Mabley in there on the cymbal. It's wonderful. That's good, that's good. Keep that, Nick. I'm going to use that. Hold it, hold it. You reset that. Reset that, Nicholas, please. That's very good. You know, while we're on the subject of uh, the sensitive soul, I I think that's related to, to, to the ego of man. You know, we, we're all... We all have an ego, no question about it. 
And that's why they have that, uh, that whole field of study called psychology. If we didn't have egos, what would we be, you know? Giraffes, that's all. I mean, you, you, you never see a, a cheetah or a leopard, which is a truly beautiful creature, or a tiger looking in the mirror and, uh, you know, fixing his locks. Never see that. Have, have, you, have you seen the, the neat uh, reversal of roles now that's taken place in uh, TV commercials? Oh, yeah. There are now more hair commercials on for men than there are for women. And this was told to me by a man in an agency who should know. He buys the time. That's right. He says, we now have in our house, that's what they call it, 17-story building that they're in over our house, you know, 46,000 employees. He says, we have in our house now more men's cosmetic accounts than women's. And he says, especially hair. They're fantastic hair. Have you seen the commercial where it shows this chick calling up, see? And uh, she's in a phone booth, and she's looking real nervous, see? And she's obviously, she says, yes, I'll be right over. I'll be right over. And she drives in her car, and she's going to pick this guy up. She's called for a date. And there's a quick switch of him. You know, you see him now, and he's frantically, he's got a hair dryer, and he's frantically drying his hair. He's just taking it down, you know, out of the curlers and all that. And, uh, and the whole pitch was that uh, if you buy this new instant dynamic virile hair dryer, in, uh, you'll be ready for the date much quicker. And uh, you won't be caught. When she shows up there, your hair will be ready. And he's blowing his hair, you know. And then she comes running in the door, and she leaps out of fantastic. He sort of backs away, see. And it says, yes, things are different now. And uh, I kind of like that. That's a... See, I say, and I, 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 I'm not against that. Don't immediately uh, call me a male chauvinist pig. I'm merely reporting what is on TV. That's it. I don't make the news. Only report it. And uh, the, 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 the point I, I, I repeat, and I'm going to continue to repeat it, the changes in our lives, our daily lives, are just walking around daily lives are far more accurately reflected in commercials than they are in news broadcasts or dramas or even even uh, movies. I have never yet seen a movie, yet, where there's a long scene of a guy fixing his hair with a hair dryer. Have you, Nick, seen one movie where they did that? That's right. But there have been commercials out for at least five years for that, which means <laughs> that the commercials are way ahead of the change, you know, of the changes that come in uh, life uh, than, the, than the movies, which, you know, are supposed to be dramas about life. And yet uh, uh, you watch those commercials, and I think it's kind of great. You know, you see all this. For example, it's quite obvious that one of the big, uh, one of the big real uh, concerns of modern man is the clogged drain. There are many clogged drain commercials. You notice that? Roto-rooter, da-da-dee. And it goes, on. I've not yet had a clogged drain. So, of course, that might be a thing that happens to guys out in the suburbs, maybe. You know, that kind of jazz. Uh, however, there's, a, there's another uh, subtle little change. There seems to be a great concern about pee stains in the sink. I mean, if I see one commercial an hour, I see ten that refer to tea stains in the sink. Now, I don't know what kind of tea they're talking about. Are they talking about the kind you drink? Uh, well, you know, if that's the case, I have never had the tea strains. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we better get on something safe here. This is WOR, friends. New York, that's safe. I repeat, for those of you who got plugs in your ears, this is WOR.
New York. And we've got a little thing for you here. <laughs> oh, dear, I'm sorry. But the Red Baron of Lufthansa German Airlines is out checking our wonderful fly-and-drive holiday. Well, get him back here right away. He's got to see my invention. What is it? Well, it's a new kind of jet plane. Uh, see the model here? You fly it to Europe, and when you land, you take it apart, and it becomes 145 European cars. All the passengers can get into the cars and drive wherever they wish. Then the cars are reassembled into a jet, and you fly back to the States. It's great. Fantastic. Yeah. But that's what the Red Baron's fly-and-drive holidays are all about. Oh? He flies you to Europe, waiting for you when you land is an Avis car. Uh-huh. And you drive away for one, two, or three weeks. You get a room every night, all included. Wow. And then the Red Baron flies you back home. Nothing to take apart, nothing to put together. Just call your travel agent or Lufthansa and ask about Europa Car Fly and Drive Holiday. Well, maybe the Red Baron would be interested in another one of my more practical inventions. Hmm? <laughs> Look, it's a baseball mitt with a built-in pencil sharpener. Here, try to the phone. Ja, das ist ein Glockenspiel. Ja, das ist I know some great lyrics to that. Just too bad you don't know low German. Ja, das ist ein... Bleibt Hey, I got a letter from uh, Mr. Chan. You read it, didn't you, Jerry? Uh, of the House of Chan. It's a great letter. And, uh, yeah, he, he really, very, really, you should see it. I'm going to bring it up, Nick. He, write me, he wrote me a letter. He says, I am not, I am not sure whether your, your audience are all going to like my food, but I hope so. He says, they all seem to like your program. If anyone could write with an elegant accent, he does. No, I actually got a letter from him. He, 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 great letter. And among other things, by the way, here's, here's an interesting little side note. If you don't know the House of Chan, I'll quickly tell you where it is. It's, you know, it's kind of a landmark in New York. It's 52nd and 7th. You know the place. But listen to this. He says, we have some new dishes that we're now preparing that, that we don't think are even being done in New York. And it says there's some new... D- if you like hot Chinese food, I do. That is really something. You know, the, 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 uh, the hot Chinese food is not as obvious as hot food in other countries. It's a curious kind of hotness. But anyway, here's, here's a note. It says some new dishes. They're hot stuff. For example, have you ever had gung pao chicken? Man, that is something else. That's what you had, Jerry, the other day. Gung pao. A, it's a, and I quote, a marvelous blend of chicken, mushrooms, and cashew nuts in a spicy hot sauce. And it's not bad. How about mokshu yolk? Now, uh, this is another hot dish. It's a subtle mixture of meat and vegetables placed in a very thin Chinese pancake. It's very thin. It's almost like paper, like a French crepe. And it's rolled up and eaten with the fingers. And it's real good. It's real good. That would be lost on some of our engineers up here, you know, who tend to judge their food by the quantity. Oh, it's a lot in that dish. The House of Chan has built its reputation over the past 35 years on truly great Cantonese cuisine. And 80% of the staff has been with the restaurant for more than 20 years. They are serving their third generation of customers, and they have 22 chefs. All of them, each one is an expert in one specific type of dish. Gung pao. I like that word. It's a gung pao. You can say gung pao. And they'll know you're very official. They'll scurry like mad. All right. <laughs> Speaking of scurry. No, no. No more commercials. For a while. I, I'll lay a couple more. Let's see. We've done House of Chan. Lufthansa. Ramesy Park. All right. Let's finish the last one. How about American Motors, huh? Eh? 
Subcompact with a standard six. The only car that wears Levi's. Blue denim look, orange stitching, copper buttons, even the Levi's tag. Now at a special price that really fits. AMC 73. Coming on strong. See your New York, New Jersey American Motors dealer now. Very good. You're eating a banana in there, huh? Hey, you know, uh, have you ever had the bananas fixed the way they fix them in the Orient? Have you ever had them, uh, well, there's a way that they fix them for a dessert in which it is fried bananas with that, uh, that very thin, it's a kind of a thin sugar molasses sauce that gets hard quickly. Man. Man. That'll do. Fifteen Weight Watchers would immediately swear off. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a, hey, you know, speaking of, uh, of playing at the chicken game, I'm kind of approaching this very, uh, very softly here, as no, so as not to make a noise. But I, I had an experience one day. Talk about chicken! And, uh, it's deeply embedded in in the in the human psyche. I think that's why they, you know, why they even have bullfighting. Uh, you know, I suspect that in a, in a curious way, even uh, the female concept of chicken takes a different tent. It takes a different trend. Male chicken games tend to be physical and this is throughout all many 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 societies so it isn't just an american chauvinist pig male blah 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 it just goes all the way back you know in the polynesian all of them where the male chicken games tend to become physical you know and uh i mean you take the african tribes and you know, go out and kill a lion uh, all this stuff this is a well-documented uh, uh anthropological fact now we can pretend that it isn't so but it is so it's just a fact and, uh, I mean, let's face it, the gladiators, you know, getting down and hacking away at each other was a very primitive form of it. Very basic, man. And uh, bullfighting, you know, this whole Hemingway mystique and all that. What do you think football is, you know, in its own way? But uh, this, this, I think the, the female or the feminine side is found more in fashions. No, I mean it. I think a woman can, can, can uh, prove she's not chicken by wearing certain kinds of things. Other women are nervous about wearing it. See, it's more subtle, you know, than men. <laughs> and there is some, some of that to do in men, too, that, uh, that you, can, you can prove, now today, you can prove you're not chicken by wearing certain kinds of suits and shirts. But the more chicken guy tends to drift into the gray flannel department just out of pure fear you see it's a kind of fear do you agree with that Nick and that that uh, that you find you find suddenly and once a guy breaks through sometimes he goes eight see the worst kind of yeah the worst kind of uh, uh, well in fact the worst kind of convert of any type of religion uh, the worst uh, fanatic is usually the convert 
I mean, a guy that turns Catholic, he's going to become a fanatic. I mean, he writes books about it and the whole bit. A guy that becomes a communist, fanatic. I mean, uh, it just, uh, just he's a convert. You know? <laughs> They're the worst. Well, this friend of mine, classic example, see, this friend of mine, he's a doctor, you know, very official type. And uh, he, it, it shows that you have a certain kind of conventional mind when you will study a certain well-prescribed uh, regimen of training for 12 years to become something. You know, this takes a, uh, a dedication to conformity in its own way. And so he goes through, you know, he studies, gets, becomes a doctor, wears gray suits and stuff. Well, a couple of years ago, he began to slowly let his sideburns get longer, see. And he discovered that not only did the, did the sky not fall on him, but he was not hit by lightning, which surprised him. Well, then he began to grow a small beard, a very small one, justifying it on the, on the grounds that, after all, uh, Dr. Freud had a beard. And the medical doctors have long been known to have small goatees, you see. Well, his beard started to get bushier and bushier. Well, one day, he was given by a patient as a gift an Edwardian flowered Tom Jones-type shirt, which he took home in a state of shock and uh, put it on at, at home, stood in front of the mirror, and, uh, of course, he, he reeled back from it because he had been buying, you know, these little white-on-white shirts for so many years. He figured that's what a real shirt is, a white-on-white shirt, see? All the others are kind of, you know, cockamamies. So uh, he, he put on this shirt. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a, a, an actual progress report on the rise, fall, and decline and sudden explosion of the human psyche. And so he, he tried the shirt on, saying, this this, uh, this beautiful uh, uh, Edwardian shirt. He stood for a moment in front of the mirror in his suburban house, glowing like a flower. And his beard suddenly changed from becoming a medical beard. And he, well, to put it bluntly, the latent hippie in him suddenly grew like a great flower. It blossomed. Pines began to spring out of it. Well, it was just a short jump to finding yourself with these real tight bell pants, which he wore around the house on weekends at first, with his beard, with his Edwardian flowered shirt. And one day, he drove his... Uh, his very conventional doctor-type car into the uh, into the parking lot of the hospital, and he saw one of his fellow doctors wheel up in a 305 Honda Scrambler. Well, not to be outdone, shortly he appeared on a 350 Honda. Beard flying in the breeze. And now he has a vast assortment of lace shirts with cuffs, with little gold buttons. He has a tremendous collection of belts, magnificent velvet vests with little chains hanging down, purple fringe in the back. He's got two motorcycles. He's considering other things. And in future, we'll give you a report on whether he's gone all the way. You should see the fantastic operating clothes he wears now around the operating room. He's the first guy to come into the hospital with an operating coat that has 
General Custer buckskin fringe on the sleeves. Psychedelic designs on the back, denoting various obscure uh, Asiatic religious signs. Deep in the heart of every man lies a squeaking chicken waiting to be released. Pump, pump, pump. Do you agree with that, Nick? <laughs> so go all the way, man. It's, you're only got. No, I'm for that. Now, I'm, I'm, I want to be perfectly understood, and I want. Uh, I agree with the. What is it? The, the Schaefer beer spot that says you only go around once. So grab all the gusto you can. I don't know what the hell gusto is and where you grab it. Apparently, they, they interpret it, drink all the beer you can drink. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I say, I say we do go around once. That's one thing you can count on. And if you are going around once, you might as well try as many things as you can on the way. Do you buy that, Nick? Well, I mean, of course, within reason. <laughs> but, you know, the, the game of chicken, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subtle game. And uh, I, I'll never forget... When I when I, I I lost, I actually lost the game of chicken. Well, let's not put it that way. That's a little blunt. Uh, I, I I entered the arena, yes, uh, and I uh, took part in the combat, yes, but I lost. Well, that doesn't that that, that doesn't mean. That, I guess you would have to say that it proves I wasn't chicken. It just meant that I lost, right? No, I mean, are you chicken if you go out into the bull ring and the bull gets you? No, that's a, that's a fine point. You are chicken. Now, you see, the point of a game, now we have to decide this, Nick, is the point of, of this, uh, you know, the test, the contest of the will against the, the uh, evil forces that are always represented in the bullfight, is it a test now whether or not to see whether you can beat the bull or whether you can beat your own chickenness to get out there and fight the bull? Now, which is the most important side? Well, that's a good question. Really, it's a good philosophical question. In other words, my, my friend, you know, the engineer, Clarence, when his Honda toppled into the Ohio River end over end with him on it, after he was trying to prove how close to the edge of the levee he could ride, now, uh, did he fail or not? No, that's a good question. What do you think? Do you think he failed, Nick, or do you? I'll tell you, he hit that water with one hell of a splash. Just want to tell you that. And he made an oil slick with that, yeah, that Honda, you know. It, was, it wasn't a Honda, it was a Vespa. It was a Vespa, a little 150 Vespa. And when he went in, it was a great sight to see because the Vespa was going full bore. You know, he was, uh, you used to see, it was kind of a sad sight, though. It was like watching the uh, Hindenburg or something go down because the, <laughs> the Vespa hit the water nose first because he was sitting on the front, see. It just went, went right in, nose first. And the last thing I saw was that little two-cycle engine just disappearing under, and it was still going. It was going, you know, and it went, a couple of bubbles gone. And he came up, man, he came up treading water, yelling and hollering, and he says, quick, get a rope, quick. He wanted to save it, see, and he had his, he had his hand, he's holding on to it, see, and the damn thing weighed about 5,000 pounds. I says, let go of it, Bob, or Clarence, you're going down with it. <laughs> he lost it, 47 feet of water. But uh, it'll be discovered one day by an anthropologist. They'll dig it up, and they'll wonder what it was, you know, what, what, what it was used for. 
But uh, now, did he lose the game of chicken or not? That's the question. Well, all right, that's a difficult one, and I will, I will, I will put my case before you. Me and Schwartz and Flick. There's three of us now. Bruner was not in on this one. It was just me and Schwartz and Flick. Now we were peers, definite peers. We were all in the same grade. Now, Bruner was a half grade behind us, see, so he didn't really count as a true peer. At that point, a half grade means a fantastic amount. You know, a guy that's in 3B is nowhere near a guy that's in 3A, you know. So uh, we're coming home one day, and it was this empty house, which had been empty in our neighborhood for, like, say, maybe well, maybe two months. You know, big signs all over for sale. And they had a lot of weeds out in the front yard, and the weeds in the back, and the garage was all boarded up and stuff. And we keep going past this house. One day, just out of, you know, sheer or whatever it is inside of you that makes you do these nutty things, we are looking in the basement window of the house, the three of us. Now, remember, it's empty. This house has been empty for months. We look in the basement window. And the three of us are peering down through the basement. You know, they had these low windows in the basement that are kind of cut out. There's a little ground, like a little concrete thing cut out down. And you can see down the basement thing. And Schwartz is looking and saying, hey, look, there's some tires in there. I'm looking, yeah, there's tires there. And Flick starts pushing on the window, seeing the damn thing opens. The window's open. Well, there was only one thing to do. The three of us climbed into the basement window in this vacant house. Now, remember, this was not an abandoned house. This was a house where the people had moved out and now there was a big sign out the front that said, for rent or for sale, contact this number, 422-6SJ7GT. You know, you've seen those. We are in the house now. now and now, you all know the basic uh, urge to break into an empty house, right? <laughs> well, we're in this house, see? And we're looking around in the basement. You can smell it kind of musty. It's been locked up for a couple of months. And you can smell the, you know, the damp in the basement. And there was a pile of old newspapers over there. And we start looking around. There's old jars of canned jelly and stuff still standing in a cupboard under the, under the steps. We're looking around. Wow, you know. Now I'll see. Towards the hey, look, there's a roller skate. And he finds a roller skate. You can see evidences of people living here. And so, Flick. It was always Flick who led us down the, the primrose path. Flick says, Hey, I wonder what's upstairs. So Flick starts going up the steps, and, and the steps creep. Get to the first landing, get the second flight of steps, and now we are at the kitchen door, which led down to the basement. Flick says, it's open. Swing the door open. We're now in the kitchen. Well, there were the sinks. There was the refrigerator, unplugged. Schwartz opened it, nothing. Some old pieces of lettuce leaves, that's all. We start looking through the cupboards. And there were all kinds of little oddments of stuff, like tea strainer, and, you know, stuff like old Brillo pads and, and bottle caps and stuff. And looking at all that. A couple of uh, flower pots over the sink that had dead geraniums. So we started to go from room to room looking at stuff. We go through the living rooms, and there's papers all over the floor and dust where you could see where the furniture was sitting. And there was even an old curtain all rolled up, thrown on the floor there, one of these lace curtains. Somebody just said, well, I'll throw it away, and they dropped it down. And we went from room to room finding stuff. We found all kinds of, like, a shoe. You find, I remember Schwartz finds this old jacket that was hanging in a closet, and he puts it on size button, 
You know, it looked like about size 98 on him. So he said, oh, I want to get a jacket. And so we went upstairs. It was a two-story house with a basement. It was upstairs where it happened. We go up the steps. Now, you know, you, you get this fantastic, delicious feeling of guilt. You know that feeling? Uh, guilt. And yet at the same time, it's very exciting. So we go up the steps. And now we were in the upper part of the house where the bedrooms were. So we walk into each bedroom. And the windows had these green shades. They had pulled the shades down. Apparently, when the people moved out, the guy that owned the house said he's going to pull the shades down. And the shades were all, it was very dark up there. You could see little, little scratch marks on the shades where the light was coming. You could see the little sun coming through. And so we're looking through all the rooms, one after the other. And Schwartz goes down the hall. And Flick and I are looking in this one big room. Schwartz goes down the hall. All of a sudden, from the distance, we hear Schwartz holler. He says, hey, wow, look what I found, you guys. And Flick and I runs down the hall and turns left, and we are now in the john. We are in the john. And there, standing before the john, is Schwartz. He has opened up this mirrored medicine cabinet that was built right into the wall. And it had about nine shelves, a great big medicine cabinet, and it was filled right to the top with bottles. Three of us, age 10, looked in this gigantic medicine cabinet full of all these fantastic bottles. Schwartz said, wow, look at that stuff. And he reaches up and he takes down a bottle, one of these medical-type bottles with the white top that snaps on a plastic top. And inside the bottle were about 15 pills. You know, the kind that looked like they had little celluloid Zeppelins, you know, the kind of little capsules with about 50 million little red BBs inside of it. And on the outside it says, in case of difficulty, take three every four hours. Schwartz says, wow, look at these. And he takes one of the pills out. And Flick says, I bet you won't swallow it, Schwartz. Which Schwartz says, who won't? Down it goes. Now he looked at me and he looked at Flick and all right, put up a shut up. So Flick takes one, this is okay. Down it goes. I take one, down it goes. At that point, Flick says, Hey man, look at them. Look at them blue ones over there. Holy God, look at them blue ones. He says, Schwartz, I bet you won't take one of these blue ones. Schwartz says, What do you mean I won't? And Flick pops a blue one in his gut. And by the way, that label says, in case of fit, take three, call doctor. <laughs> Down goes the blue one. I took a blue one. Well, may I say this, friends? Crime, sin, is not a simple thing. One does not simply steal one hubcap. Once you've stolen your first hubcap, the second comes easier. The third becomes a necessity. You say to yourself, i got two hubcaps, what good are they? Unless I have three of them. And then after three, there's no question about taking the fourth. And so it goes. Once you've started on the hubcaps, after that, follows the bumpers. Very shortly after that, it's the tires. And then you move on to whole cars. 
<laughs> the, who knows where it'll go from that point. Well, the first three or four pills were hard to take because somehow we, you know, we knew somehow, secretly, deep inside, it's, it's, the, it's the mystique of the, of the conscience. We knew it was wrong. And that's why we did it. Yes, that is why we did it. So within the first five minutes, the three of us, between, I'd say, Schwartz, Flick, myself, we had knocked down maybe 26 different types of pills. Blue, green, some red ones, a couple of fantastic orange ones. With that skull and crossbones on the bottle. And we just kept knocking down pills. Each one of us said, I bet you won't take any of them. Well, we knocked down the pills, one after the other, for maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, when suddenly Schwartz set the flick. I don't feel so good. That is a key point in the chicken game. That's the first crack. So don't feel so good. I want to tell you, Schwartz merely said, in a very minor form, what I was feeling. Something was making my feet feel like they was melting. I could feel my feet melting in my socks. Have you ever felt your feet melt right underneath you? I could feel them. It was funny. They was numb. I could feel this coming up, see? And Flick says, what do you mean, Schwartz? You're not feeling good. Watch me take this one. You're not feeling good? Ha <laughs> ha. Watch. I bet you won't take one of these. And he takes this pill that looked like a tiny Brillo pad covered with plastic. He pops it in his gut, and he swallows it down, and it was fantastic. He just fell over sideways. So, help me God, he fell over sideways and was laying on an old bath mat that was in the job. <laughs> well, at that point, it became, obviously, a different ball game. Schwartz was sitting on the john, heaving his guts out. I am laying sideways, diagonally, with my head out in the hall. And I can feel funny things like quivers coming up through my... Right, like my bones were like made out of rubber bands and somebody was snapping them. Like, oop, oop, something was working inside me. Have you ever had the involuntary reaction of your entire system about to reject 16 pounds of totally bad news stuff? It just kept going, oop, and it wouldn't come up. Oop, oop, oop. And I looked over and I see Schwartz, and Schwartz, I'll tell you, Schwartz was a fantastic color. He was glowing like the bottom of a dead catfish. The only thing I could think of, he looked like a dead catfish. He was kind of silver. His, his face was silver. And then it came out in a great, unending gush. And I lay there on the floor. Have you ever had, you know that, well, you know what it's like. You've had the feeling of, of total nausea. When you let and sweat is pouring out of you. And you just hang out of the floor, you know, you figure you're gonna die. You just lay there. I can feel my eyeballs popping up. And Flick is coming too. I don't know what that pill was that looked like a pillow pad. Flick comes to him, he says, Hey, hey you guys! Hey, look out! It's by the wall. Then he laid down again and fell asleep. Well, time passed on great limping legs between bouts of heaving and retching. And Flick waking up every 15 minutes and hollering, Look, it's over there! It's by the wall! He kept falling over again. 
And roughly six weeks later, we crawled out of the basement window and through the privet hedges and headed home. Criminals. I remember coming into the house and I had developed double vision somewhere between the garage and the back porch. I staggered into the house. My mother says, I've got a surprise for you. I brought you and Randy some Twinkies. Twinkies! Normally, I was a Twinkie man all the way. But today was different. And so I've, I've had many, I've had many, uh, many, uh, I've had many a query from my listeners asking to describe my first experience with drugs. You heard it. Now, was Flick a chicken? Did he win? He took the ultimate pill. Schwartz dropped up first. But it was only because something had had a hold of my larynx and I couldn't say anything. For at least five minutes before Schwartz says, I don't feel so good. I thought it was me. So who won the game of chicken? I don't know. All I know is that sometimes, whenever, these days, even now, when I pass a medicine cabinet, I have a strange feeling. Like most uh, modern men, I, uh, I occasionally have that urge when I'm visiting friends to look through their medicine cabinets to see what's going on, you know? <laughs> uh, friends, it is one thing to look, but another thing to experiment. That's another ball game. In case of fit, take one every three hours. Until fit. <laughs> oh, that was one of the scarifying experiences of my existence. And since that time, I've been very leery about taking anything. I see all these TV commercials, you know, where these people uh, fall asleep taking stuff moves out their lives, fixes different kinds of headaches. Chicken. Chicken, you Oh, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith. He's got the news. WR Newsroom, Lester Smith reporting. The Oakland Athletics with a two-run ninth-inning rally that features three pinch singles edged Cincinnati 3-2 to take a three-games-to-one lead in the 1972 World Series. More details later. The grand ballroom of the Waldorf Astoria is tonight's center of political comment. WR's John Scott reports. The Alfred E. Smith Memorial Dinner is still going strong at this hour, attended by the biggest political stars of the nation, with the exception of President Richard Nixon himself. The Republican plan is apparent by now. The vice president is used to match and debate Senator George McGovern. 
leaving Mr. Nixon above the battle. The senator was in good form in front of a less than enthusiastic audience this evening. It's interesting to note that the Democratic standard bearer toned down some of his more pointed barbs, which had appeared in the advanced text, although he did make one reference to the Watergate affair. Vice President Agnew has yet to speak. For the most part, it is all unity and bipartisanship at the Alfred E. Smith dinner at the Waldorf. For WOR News, this is John Scott. President Nixon's chief domestic affairs aide, John Ehrlichman, said today that Mr. Nixon is considering other ways to keep the 1973 budget year from going above $250 billion now that the Congress has refused to approve that spending ceiling. Ehrlichman said the president could use vetoes and may impound funds appropriated to some government agencies. And Ehrlichman commented that it would be tough to avoid tax increases next year because the Congress rejected the president's request to hold federal spending at $250 billion. And to further amplify the conflict between the White House and Congress over what is or is not an inflationary budget, Treasury Secretary George Shultz declared today in Washington... In order to get to the...